Hanukkah to you. Today, this evening, begins Hanukkah, and uh, we're going to take the next several days and um, keep our focus on Hanukkah and um, gain appreciation for a holiday that Jesus himself uh, would have uh, engaged in and practiced, and we will look at that uh, in the scriptures. And I am excited to uh, I'm excited to share all of that with you uh, this morning. So <clears throat> I'm fighting with my computer just a little bit here <clears throat> and with a frog in my, <clears throat> here we go, with a frog in my voice. But uh, I think I just uh, I just overcame that. And we see Walter there saying shalom and uh, uh, absolutely shalom back to you. Shalom, malachem, malachem, shalom. And uh, good to be with all of you. Now, let's talk about Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? Why celebrate Hanukkah? What's the big deal with Hanukkah? Let me tell you, uh, you know, Jesus never practiced Christmas. Now, uh, there there are Christians out there who like to to waste their time, and I'm I'm just going to put it that way. And if I offend you, I don't care. Uh, so uh, who like to waste their time arguing about, well, Christmas didn't happen on December 25th. You know, they're probably right. Okay. Uh, or, well, Christmas was set on December 25th because of the winter solstice and, and you know, it was meant to overshadow a pagan holiday. Yep, that's great. Uh, or some will say, well, you know, the tree represents all these pagan things. The tree Anything represents what you decide it's going to represent. I mean, that kind of sounds like contemporary thinking, doesn't it? But it's true. I mean, for some, if they want to say this tree is a tree uh, offered to the gods and, and all of our decorations on there are offered to the gods, that makes it pagan, that makes it an idol, that makes it sinful. However, for us, 
uh, in our household, and probably for you, if you're one who has a Christmas tree, uh, the lights for me, especially the last three years or so, have, have taken on more robust significance because uh, of understanding Hanukkah and what the lights uh, at Hanukkah mean and what the lights at Christmas can mean. So it has heightened my sense of worship at Christmas. And, and frankly, I mean, yeah, people say, well, we shouldn't celebrate because it's so commercialized. Well, you know, it's like saying I shouldn't be involved in the church because, you know, it, it has unhealthy uh, aspects about it. No, that, that's that's ludicrous. Celebrate Christmas. Celebrate Hanukkah. And you have to get that in there uh, to make it legit, you know. And... Um, I want to talk about Hanukkah. Now, those, those of you that have been a part of this broadcast for, uh, the last several years, I mean, this, none of this is going to be new to you, but this would be a good refresher for you. Uh, I could go back all the way to like 1440 BC. Uh, and back to Leviticus chapter 23, and we're not going to go there, uh, but I'm going to reference this. When the, the feasts of the Lord were given through Moses to the people of Israel. Now, there are several feasts that, that take place this time of year. Hanukkah is not one at all that is listed there. Um, there are other feasts, seven particular feasts, some that take place in the spring of the year, you would know, uh, for instance, like Passover, Pentecost, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I mean, those are those are feasts in the spring of the year. But then in the fall, and I forgot to mention one, but I don't remember which one. In the fall of the year, there are three other feasts, all given in Leviticus chapter 23. The Jewish people uh, should observe those holidays, and often they do, um, and I am now giving more thought to, and, and from a Christian perspective, uh, the significance of those holidays as they point to Christ. They, they, they can heighten our sense of relationship to our Savior. And so I am a proponent that, that, you know, I think it's good to at least be aware, uh, if not downright celebrate those holidays. Now, the, the holiday that takes place this time of year is Hanukkah. Now, it falls between like the middle of November and or middle to end of November to the middle end of December. Usually it doesn't go really later than Christmas. Sometimes it might overlap with Christmas because the Jewish calendar is different than the Gregorian calendar. And so that is why their dates are mo- kind of move around a little bit in terms of when does it take place. Now, I reference 1440. That's when the feasts of the Lord were given. And since they're the Lord's feast, some of, some of my messianic friends, some, some are messianic Jewish friends and some are, uh, are not Jewish, but have decided uh, to, to live a more messianic lifestyle observing the, uh, the, the various holidays of the Lord, the, uh, the feasts of the Lord. Um, we don't have to celebrate them, but they certainly can heighten our sense of appreciation. Now, let's just talk for a little bit. So, 1440, uh, and then we we come up 
to like AD, uh, BC 500. Uh, and that's not the exact date. I'm giving you just some, some rough uh, dates here. 500, 570, uh, in, in that range, perhaps 550 BC, uh, there was a prophet named Daniel and Daniel in the, the 11th chapter of his, what is now his, what we call the book of Daniel gives a prophecy that uh, comes to fruition, uh, some roughly 400 years later during a, a period that we call the intertestamental period. Now, the intertestamental, intertestamental period is that time between the end, the close of the Old Testament, which the Old Testament concludes with the book of the Italian prophet Malachi. Now, for any that don't know, I'm, I'm kidding. He was, he was a Jewish prophet, and it was Malachi. In fact, that is, is, isn't even how they would say Malachi, but that is how we would say Malachi. Um, so the end of Malachi all the way to the book of Matthew, there's what is called the 400 silent years, the intertestamental period. And what Daniel prophesied, which we're going to look at here in the book of Daniel, comes to fruition uh, in that intertestamental period uh, several hundred years after the prophecy was given. So let me take us over to Daniel chapter 11. It says, in the first year of Darius the Mede. Now, you need to remember that there were um, prophecies given, and, and Daniel, in fact, Isaiah, and some earlier prophets actually prophesied some of these things. And, and Daniel will talk about the the, uh, the various kingdoms. Some of those kingdoms have to do with uh, the Babylonians, and that was Nebuchadnezzar, the beginning of the book of Daniel. And now we read in chapter 11, the first year of Darius the Mede, when, when the Medes and Persians uh, overcame the Babylonians, and now they're in charge of of the land where where in Israel lies, the Middle East, and and that area around the Mediterranean. Uh, so we see Darius the Mede, and he it says this. He says, "I took my stand to support and protect him." Uh, we see Daniel doing his his work uh, for those who are captors. Uh, and he will go on and, and he will talk about other kings and then he will talk about four rulers. Uh, and then he'll talk about 10 nations uh, and all these things that are a part of, of all the prophecy of Daniel, which we're not going to go into today. We covered that a few years ago. Uh, but just to highlight a little section here, I want to read for you. It says, now then I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia and then a fourth. Uh, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Now, this is referring to the time of the Romans, when the Romans will overcome the Greeks. And the Greeks haven't even come on the scene yet. Currently, it's the Persians. And here we see Daniel already talking about the Greeks prophesying before it happened that the Greeks would overtake the Medes and the Persians. And uh, and then he references this fourth uh, power, and he's speaking of the, the Roman rule that will take place. Uh, and, and then it says, a mighty king will appear uh, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. Now, th- this he is actually a Seleucid Greek, a Syrian Greek uh, king uh, who comes after the time of 
Alexander the Great. If you remember, Alexander the Great was conquering the world at age 32. Uh, I'm sorry, at age 28. And by age 32, he had died, uh, dividing up his kingdom among his four generals. Um, and one of them was Antiochus. And Antiochus to have a son, and his name, in fact, son, grandson, his son would be named, uh, this, this grandson would be named Antiochus the fourth who will then take on the name Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, you say, okay, what's this have to do with me? We'll get there. Hang in there. History is important. Now, after he's appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. And this now he's talking specifically about Alexander the Great. It will not go to his descendants. He didn't have any, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. And so it, it goes on. Uh, verse 5, the king of the south will come strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. Let me let me get down later because there's a lot there, and I don't have a lot of time to cover this today uh, and get through get through all of it. So uh, let, let me jump down a little bit later. Um, Speaking of the king of the north, down in verse 13, it says the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years he'll advance with a huge army fully equipped. Now, this is this is significant to note that this army is fully equipped. It says, In those times will rise against he will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. It says that the king of the north will come and build up uh, siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have strength to stand. And the invader will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land. And just for the record, when it says beautiful land, that is speaking of Israel, okay? Some will say, well, Israel hasn't been around, you know, that long, at least since 1948. Wait a minute. No! Israel was established, uh, what, 3,000 years ago, um, more than 3,000, 3,500 years ago, uh, that Israel was established in, in the land that is called the Canaan land. So those, if any hear anybody arguing, well, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're squatters or, or all that type of thing, say, do you know history? <laughs> And say, you realize that Israel has been in that land for, you know, almost 4,000 years. So even it says it's only been the last 75 years or whatever since 1948 does not know history. Yes. Now, the fact is they had been conquered. And from 8070 until 1948, they really did not possess their land. But prior to 8070, uh, now, again, they were in that land. And then you go back 400 years Prior to that, four to five hundred years prior to that, and when the Babylonians came in uh, and, and took over land. Prior to that, though, the Israelites possessed the land that we now call Israel. I'm just wanting to uh, clarify and fortify that as a reality. Uh, I, I I have to jump down. Uh, Uh, 
Okay, now it keeps speaking about, and I'm, I'm looking down through the passage because I don't have time to cover all of it and unpack all of it. Um, it, it. It keeps referencing the idea of them rising up in verse 36. It says the king will do as he pleases. Uh, and, and now we are legitimately at Antiochus Epiphanes. It says he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods who we're speaking about uh, uh, Hashem, we're speaking about Yahweh, we're speaking about uh, the God of, of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the one God, it says he will be successful until a time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. Now, these things will take place. It says he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself uh, above them all. Now, the one desired by women, some of the Greek gods were uh, Adonis. Uh, they, they were they, they were worshiping the human body, and, and especially the well-sculpted human body. And uh, so it talks about the one that the women desire, perhaps Zeus, speaking about Zeus. Uh, and in verse 38, it says, instead of them, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones, costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. And he'll make them rulers over many people. Um, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. The king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and, and the cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will invade the beautiful land, again, Israel. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Amnon will be delivered. He will extend his power over many countries, but Egypt will not escape. Uh, and it says he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. We're, we're now speaking Mount Zion. He will come to his, uh, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. When we read these passages and you get into, uh, we need to back up to uh, some earlier verses. Uh, verse 31 says, his armed forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. They will set up the abomination that causes desolation with flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Now, let me let me talk about this. This, this brings us to roughly eighty one. Uh, I mean, BC one seventy down to uh, like one sixty five BC in that range of years. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, he seizes Jerusalem, and not only does he seize Jerusalem. He also seizes the temple, and when it mentions he will set up the abomination that causes desolation, what Antiochus did in the temple, I mean, uh, pigs, swine were considered non-kosher to the Jews, and so what he did is he slaughtered a pig, a swine, on the altar at the temple, thus defiling, yes, uh, desecrating the temple, he put out the menorah that was supposed to burn perpetually in the temple uh, as, as a symbol of the presence of God. He brought in the statue of Zeus and then would eventually proclaim, look, I am Antiochus 
God manifest. Antiochus Epiphanes means God manifest. And in this way, this abomination that causes desolation happened the first time. It will happen again. Uh, many believe, not not all, but many uh, prophecy scholars will tell you they believe the desecration, uh, the abomination desecration will happen again. Some do not think a temple will be rebuilt, but most of us do think a temple will be rebuilt. And partway through the tribulational period, uh, there will be another ruler who will do the exact same thing as what Antiochus Epiphanes did by standing in the temple and declaring that he himself is God. I mean, we have to come to, to that type of place in human, in all the cultures of the world where the world itself will clamor for a ruler like that. Now, Again, I, I, I may have to go a little bit long this morning. There were people who stood against him. Verse 32 said, people who know their God will firmly resist him. And there were people. Now, people that resisted Antiochus Epiphanes, he had his soldiers take these carts uh, around to the various villages. And those villages, um, at those villages, he would have people uh, the, the the soldiers say, bow down to these gods. And the people had three options. Either they will have fled before the soldiers arrive and gone to the hills so they don't have to face the soldiers. That's what some people did. Other people did choose to fight, and they lost their lives. Uh, and the third group of people fell. They bowed the knee to the altars and said, this is the way things are going. We're just going to go along with it. They came to a town, the soldiers came to a town called Modein. And in Modein, which is partway between Jerusalem, it's still there today, partway between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, uh, Jerusalem to the southeast, Tel Aviv to the northwest, and Modein located between uh, those those two places, there was a retired priest whose name was uh, Mattathihu or Mattathias. And... uh, when they came to him and his five sons, Mattathias had determined, look, I will stand for God. And uh, the story goes, one of the stories goes, that, but there was an older gentleman there who, who saw a bloodbath coming and said, I will bow. Uh, and, and perhaps in, in my bowing the knee, that will, uh, that will let everyone else off the hook. And Mattathihu, uh, Mattathias said, we will have no part of that. And there happened to be a soldier standing near with his uh, sword in his scabbard. And the the, uh, the the priest, Mattathihu, grabbed the sword, pulled it from its scabbard, and killed the uh, this Greek soldier, perhaps Syrian soldier. Uh, we're not sure about that piece. But that began what became known as the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, one of the sons of uh, Mattathihu, his name was uh, Judah, Judah uh, rose to prominence in, in leading this revolt. Uh, his father started it, but he became kind of the, the chief military operator of this ragtag bunch of freedom fighters. Uh, and he wasn't called Maccabee prior, but he led so effectively, and God used him so effectively, and God used this revolt to preserve Israel, something that Satan wanted to see uh, taken out, taken down, what what we see yet again today, that, that satanic in nature, because if we can take out Israel, we can take out Messiah, and Satan wins. It's not going to be the end of history. We know the end of the story. 
But Mattathihu, Ahuda, uh, and the other sons uh, revolted and led others, and they said, "He who will stand for God, stand with me." And that was that was the the words. And so even today, I mean, that's a takeaway for us: Who will stand for God today? Will we stand for God today? So lesson number one: uh, 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 What has become Hanukkah had to do with the fight, the revolt, uh, and, and so here is this. Uh, Greco-Syrian army, powerful, conquering lands, conquering, I mean, all the way down in Egypt and in that region around the, the Mediterranean. They're a mighty, mighty army. And what happens is this ragtag bunch of freedom fighters. God enables them to overcome the army, to regain Jerusalem, to regain the temple. Uh, and when they go into the temple, they they see the desecration of the temple, and they conclude we must cleanse the temple. And, and so they cleanse the temple. Uh, they said we must rededicate the temple to God. And so that was the second thing they did. But then the third thing was they said they've put out the light. So they cleanse the temple, cleaned up all the the pig blood and and all that. Uh, they they uh, they said we're going to rededicate the temple, which apparently the the temple dedication. Prior had been eight days, so they said we will choose eight days. Plus, on top of that, scholars also point to the fact that they were not able to celebrate the the later fall feast of Sukkot or Festival of Booths, which was an eight-day festival. So they concluded we will celebrate eight days uh, in, in this festival of dedication, this feast of dedication. This is where Hanukkah comes from. And... Um, uh, but they had to light the menorah. They they needed eight flasks or uh, enough oil to burn the menorah for eight days. They found a flask with enough oil for perhaps a day, and it was going to take several days for them to purify enough new olive oil. It's olive oil, and the way it had to be pressed and, and all the all the procedures that needed to take place to have kosher. Uh, properly prepared olive oil for the the temple. Uh, I was going to take several days. They said, in faith, we're going to light the menorah with what we have and trying to honor our God. Well, God saw that faith and honored them by allowing that single day uh, supply of oil to burn all eight days in the temple. And so that is why it is called the festival of lights. Now, um, Wow, I'm just going to go long today. Sorry, uh, I just I, I need to cover this. When you go over to the New Testament in the book of John, uh, Jesus is around the area of of Jerusalem. He's around the area of the temple. Let me get us over into this passage, uh, John chapter eight, and, and he is around the area. And it says when Jesus spoke again to the people, and he's most believe he's in the temple area. It is probably either the the, the the Feast of Dedication or almost the Feast of Dedication, which is also called the, the Festival of Lights, says, Jesus spoke to the people and said, I am the light of the world. So while they're all thinking about the, the what is now called the Hanukkah, the eight, um, the menorah that has nine candles on it uh, or nine lights lit by oil, um, Jesus makes this declaration, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, let, let me just appeal to this. All the Christmas lights that we have, 
now they can take on new meaning. And, and I love Christmas lights. I just love Christmas time. Uh, I don't have my own house decorated yet. We need to work on that. But, but uh, to look at the Christmas light now and think, ah, feast of dedication, festival of lights, Hanukkah, Jesus, John chapter 8, verse 12, saying, I am the light of the world. So when you look at your Christmas tree and see your lights, I'm the light of the world. Now, that's part of the reason that, that I have always been kind of partial to the white lights, but I'm beginning to like the various colored lights. And for the record, I'll, let me put a picture up there. Um, I just want to mention this real fast. Let me share this picture. Uh, here, here are the candles. Now, if you buy a box of uh, Hanukkah candles or Hanukkah candles, uh, or menorah candles, you might get a box that has all these different colors. There's red, there's blue, there's yellow, there's pink. You know, there, there's a variety of colors. Uh, there's a light blue, there's almost purple, uh, a variety of colors. And some will go, well, you know, this is all appealing to, you know, the, the LGBTQ. No, it, it's a reminder. The various colors are a reminder of the God-given rainbow. So there's all kinds of symbolism uh, in the Hanukkah, in, in, in the Hanukkah lights, and it has nothing to do with the gay agenda. It has everything to do with, with uh, the colors of the rainbow. So take that, Don, with your lights uh, uh, and the colored lights and think, okay, the colored lights remind us of God's promise of the rainbow. So, I mean, you can go both ways with the white lights, the purity of the white lights, but then also uh, the, the colors that are here. And, I mean, you can communicate the gospel through these colors as well. So when you see them, don't think, oh, this is uh, catering to the gate. No, this existed well before the... Uh, the gay agenda of America, well, well, well before. So so when you look at this, again, you think of the story of the gospel, you think of the story of uh, of the flood and the rainbow and God's promise to mankind, and then you see the lights and you think about, you know, the lights that were lit. Uh, and so in Hanukkah, uh, the Jews are remembering two things. They're remembering how God honored their fight and how God honored their light. And for us, that God would honor us as we would show faith as well. That, that we would uh, uh, w- would have the same measure of faith as, as, the, uh, as the Jewish people. That, that we as believers in Jesus would, uh, would demonstrate faith would demonstrate our belief in, in, in the Lord in, in, in any number of different arenas, uh, and uh, that, that would people would see faith in uh, faith in us. Now, let me pull up. I want to read to you a little bit. In fact, let me do it this way. This might work easier. There are readings that go with the lighting of the candles, and they always go from right to left. So you have a center candle, which is called the the servant candle, the shamash candle, and uh, that the one in the middle. That's the one that you light with a match, and then you light all the other candles from the servant candle, and they begin from the far right and move to the left. That is how they read. We we read left to right, but they read and go just the opposite direction. 
And so we, on the first night, celebrate the marvelous light at the temple uh, rededication and the light himself, Yeshua, the Messiah, Messiah, given for each one of him. And, and you would say this blessing, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and has given us Yeshua, the Messiah, light of the world. Now you say, why the commandments mentioned? Because Antiochus Epiphanes outlawed the Torah, he outlawed Jewish practice, he outlawed circumcision, he outlawed teaching this Shema, which is found in the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Any Jewish practice, he wanted them to all follow Hellenistic practices. And another prayer that would be said is, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who perform miracles for our ancestors, and blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has kept us alive, sustained us, and enabled us to reach this season. And you would use the servant candle to light the the, the first Hanukkah candle, and you return the shamash to its place, and then you let the candles go out on their own, typically. And there are scripture readings that would go along with this. I mean, you, we, we just read from uh, um, John chapter 8. And from today's uh, uh, Jewish interpretation, TLV, it says, Yeshua spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but have the light of life. But then also, a reminder to us from Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, uh, the people sitting in darkness have seen a great light, and those sitting in the region and shadow of death on them, the light has dawned. And, and for the Jewish people in that intertestamental period, uh, we see this. I mean, they, they were in the shadow of death. If they stood for God, it cost them their life, but God honored their faith. And we would conclude the, this brief time of reading with Father of Lights. Thank you for sending Yeshua, the light of the world, to illuminate our darkness and free us from life without you. Hashem, you are light, and you have taken us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you for your power displayed through miracles in the ancient days and through your love in our hearts as you have given us new life in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And uh, that would be the concluding concluding prayer that would be, it would be said uh, as you conclude. Now, there's so much to this, to be dedicated to the Lord. Uh, to be a light to those around us, um, to to be cleansed. They cleanse the temple, so we, we cleanse ourselves. Uh, and, and to demonstrate faith in what God will do. There is so much that Hanukkah can bring to us. It is my prayer that, that you have been uh, inspired, instructed, and encouraged this morning. And, and you can you can go online and find, uh, you know, um, a guide for, uh, in fact, last year I sent out a guide, uh, and, uh, Pastor Jacob. I'm so thrilled that he is following suit uh, and uh, doing the same, but that you yourself could practice. So you don't have to have a, a Hanukkah that, that has the, the, the upward. Now, they're, they're reaching upward. There's a, there's a metaphor in the reaching upward of the light. It's, it's a light from God, but you could get uh, a simple um, piece of wood with with nine holes drilled in it and put little tea lights in it. You, you could do something like that as well. But 
the point is to worship our God and draw near to Jesus and think with gratitude all that God does for his people. So friends, uh, I just want to encourage you today that you would be inspired, that you would be instructed, that you would be... um, Thought I opened this. There we go. Uh, And that you would be blessed as you celebrate this time of year. So as I conclude, Lord, help us to worship you robustly in faith. This Hanukkah and Christmas season. In Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, have a great day. We will see you again. Yes, I will be on again tomorrow. See you then.